Welcome to Her Half of History. My name is Lori. The current series is A Slave, But Now I'm Free. This is episode 4.5, Rosa Egipsiaca, A Slave in Brazil. The first African slaves to arrive in Brazil came in 1533, so when Rosa stepped foot into the New World in 1725, it was all in a long-established routine. Routine for the port, and the traders, that is. Not much is routine when you are six years old. She had come from West Africa. I've read both Nigeria and Benin, but either way, I doubt that such a young child remembered much of her life there. The passage, she was probably old enough to remember. Her first owner was José de Souza Acevedo. I have no details about her life in this period, except to say that he mistreated her in all the ways available to him. At age 14, she was sold to a family outside of Minas Gerais. Minas Gerais, as the name suggests, was a mining district, famous for gold and gems. Like most mining towns, men were plentiful. Women were scarce. Rosa was expected to fend for herself. Unlike many slaves, she was not given food and shelter in return for never-ending labor. She provided her own food and shelter, and probably owed a regular sum to her owner. This gave her more personal freedom than maybe fits into our mental image of slavery, but of course prostitution was really the only profession open to her. Hers was not the pampered, well-trained, high-class prostitute route we saw in episode 4.2 on Naira, or on the bonus blog post on Volumnia Citharis. Minasharais wasn't that kind of place. There is a 750-page biography of Rosa, and possibly in there it gives a clear account of her rise to freed woman. Unfortunately, the book is only in Portuguese, which doesn't help me at all. So I apologize in advance if I've got the details of this part wrong, but my sources are very fuzzy on the sequence of these years. They are so fuzzy that I'm not even clear on whether the primary sources themselves are fuzzy, which is more than possible, or whether my secondary sources are simply more interested in other parts of the story, which is definitely true. I think what happened is that in 1748, at the age of almost 30, she fell sick. Her face swelled up, her stomach cramped, she had fainting fits, and she saw visions. Now, you can explain the visions however you like, but whatever they were, they seem to have been very convincing. Convincing enough that they came to the attention of Francisco González López, a local priest. He was so famous for his exorcisms that he was nicknamed Xota Diabos, meaning one who drives out devils. Rosa was possessed by seven devils, according to her later testimony. But she also saw edifying visions, Mary in the heavens, choirs of angels, and even revelations like the location of a spring of water where a church was later built. Lopez wanted Rosa to be free, and his nephew ultimately traded another slave for her and then set her free. Rosa gave up prostitution, sold all of her few possessions, gave the money to the poor, though I'm sure she was one of the poor, and then devoted herself to the church. I am not clear on how she was supporting herself in this period, but I suspect from donations. Her visions continued. Her fame grew. Glorious visions were one thing, but she also had a less-than-endearing habit of calling people to task for their misbehavior in church, by which I mean things like chatting with your friends during communion. And she showed neither tact nor regard for the status of the offender. 
For example, one visiting missionary was preaching when she yelled out that he was Satan himself, which apparently he did not take as a compliment. Lopez was on her side, but others in the clergy weren't so keen on this style of devotion. Questions were asked, trials were made, and they decided she was a sham and a liar. The local people began calling her a witch. Eventually, Rosa fled to Rio de Janeiro with the faithful Lopez by her side. In Rio, Rosa fell in with the Franciscans at the convent of Santo Antonio, which, by the by, is still there. The Franciscans either didn't know or didn't care that the Minas Gerais clergy had declared her a sham. They were much impressed by her devotion, shown through fasting and self-flagellation, and also her continuing visions. Now, one of my more cynical sources suggests that the Franciscans liked her because they wanted a showy example of black holiness to help them impress and control the enormous black segment of the population. Also because the public had acclaimed her a saint, even if the Pope had not, and having her encouraged donations to the convent. I myself think there's no reason to suppose that people have only one motive for what they do. It's possible to be both spiritually edified and glad for donations and public enthusiasm. Also, the Franciscans were a group of people, and there's no reason to suppose that all of them were acting out of the same motive. It was here in Rio that she changed her name. She chose Rosa Maria Egipsiaca de Veracruz after Saint Mary of Egypt, a 4th century prostitute turned desert hermit and the patron saint of penitence. She was following a long tradition of changing her name to signify her spiritual transformation. This tradition went back not just to the New Testament, but also to the Old Testament. She could have chosen the name of any of many Catholic saints, but she found the one that mirrored her own story and emphasized her origins as someone who had not always lived a perfect life. The Franciscans also taught her to read and write. She took to it with far more enthusiasm than your average student. She wrote a 250-page book called Sacred Theology of the Love of the God of Light Shining in the Pilgrim Souls. It is the first book written by a black Brazilian woman, so it is truly a tragedy that much of it burned. Only a few pages remain. With the financial support of the Franciscans, Rosa also founded a retreat for women. The foundation stone was laid in 1754, and once built she took in 20 women of all races, many of whom were former prostitutes like herself. She was remarkably generous in some ways. Three of the women were daughters of her former owner. People came to the retreat to seek her advice. They also ate her holy relics. Now brace yourselves, this was a biscuit made of flour and Rosa's saliva. Yeah, gross, I know, but germ theory hadn't been invented yet. Lopez was still around, singing her praises. He had a copper image of her made and distributed. In it, she is stepping on devils and lifting a grateful soul out of purgatory while St. Michael crowns her with a wreath. It is perhaps just a tad vainglorious for someone who was only a saint by local acclaim. And if you took a dive into her book and her visions, there was more to trouble a believer in the strict hierarchy. Rosa said that the baby Jesus came every day to nurse from her. He would comb her hair in gratitude. She said she had died and risen from the dead. She said that God himself had given her the title of Mother of Justice, and she would decide whether you were going to heaven or elsewhere. 
She said she was married to the Holy Trinity and that she was the new redeemer of the world. These were risky pronouncements in a world where the church hierarchy still held great power. Interestingly, the visions were not the catalyst to Rosa's downfall. No, it was the same behavior that had turned Minas Gerais against her. A wealthy, high-born lady had the temerity to talk to her neighbor during a church service. Rosa threw her out of the church, physically. Wealthy, high-born ladies have connections, and Rosa found herself arrested. Twenty witnesses were called, and all those questionable revelations came out for a public airing. In 1763, the local authorities decided this case was above them, which I actually find somewhat surprising. I think it must be an indication of how much popular support Rosa had, because in the ordinary course of things, I wouldn't expect the establishment to have much trouble handing out a verdict on one black female ex-slave. But the authorities either wouldn't or couldn't crush her personally. Nor would they vindicate her. Instead, they shipped Rosa across the ocean so that the Portuguese Inquisition could decide the matter. And she didn't go alone. Lopez was right there, too. In Brazil, Rosa's story was more or less forgotten. Her book burned. Most of her story comes to us not from there, but from the meticulous records in the archives of the Inquisitorial Office in Lisbon. Now, I have a certain mental image associated with a trial under the Inquisition, but my sources don't mention torture. I am not sure whether that means it didn't happen, or if the original records don't mention it, or if my secondary sources just discreetly left it out. I do know that Lopez blamed it all on Rosa. He babbled that he had been deceived, that he was just a simple, uneducated man who didn't know church theology well enough to know that Rosa wasn't in line, that the Franciscans thought she was great, so he followed their lead, that he was absolutely naive, but definitely not malicious. As punishment, he was banished for five years and stripped of some of his priesthood privileges. Rosa was made of sterner stuff. At no point did she retract anything. She declared firmly, I saw and heard it all. Her testimony is lengthy and more coherent than I might expect under such circumstances. Her final session was on June 4th, 1765. The record ends saying that as it was late in the day, they closed the court to resume later. And that's it. Louise Mott, the historian who unearthed her records, said that in the over 1,000 records he read, Rosa's was the only incomplete one. We have no verdict, either for or against her. In 1771, there is a record that says she was found dead on the floor of the kitchen. The implication is that she was not being held as a prisoner in the dungeon. Rather, she was working as a kitchen servant, whether willingly or not. This was very possibly not great, certainly not as good as running a women's refuge in Rio and having people come to hang on your every word, but on the other hand, it is enormously better than some of the other possible alternatives. So how are we to take Rosa and her story? Many explanations are possible. The people of Rio believed her visions were genuine, spiritual manifestations. Another explanation is that she experienced hallucinations as a result of trauma. That she was traumatized cannot be disputed. Some have suggested side effects of venereal disease, which would certainly be understandable given her history. Of course, the authorities of the time were concerned about either genuine possession by a devil, 
or a coldly calculated intelligent lie generated for her own self-aggrandizement. Personally, I rule that last one out. If she had consciously made the whole thing up, she had every opportunity to recant, like Lopez did. My own opinion is that Rosa herself truly believed her visions were real. The historian Rachel Spaulding has suggested yet another source for some of Rosa's ideas. In her dissertation, she points to parallels between Rosa's visions and behavior and what has been documented about African religious experience and Yoruba religion in particular. Rosa was too young to have learned much religion in West Africa, but she grew up surrounded by other slaves, many of whom were much older when they crossed in a slave ship. So what the church saw as strange and devilish may actually have been Rosa's attempt to fuse two distinct religious traditions. If true, that may also explain her enormous popularity among a society where so many had the same background that she did and also her lack of popularity with a Portuguese-trained clergy. In the end, though, regardless of what you think of Rosa's visions, she was a remarkable person. It is hard to start much lower than she did, but she managed to catalog quite a list of achievements. Just learning to read and write was an achievement for an ex-slave, much less writing a 250-page book, the first ever written by a black Brazilian woman. Just finding a source of support for herself in Rio was an achievement, much less seeing through the construction and management of a woman's shelter that accepted women from all classes, races, and backgrounds. In these successes, it is possible to see her self-confidence grow. In 1750, she was signing her letters as your humble slave. She wasn't literally a slave then, but this is the kind of obsequiousness that is common in slave-owning societies. By 1758, she was signing her letters as Your Spiritual Mother. It is quite a transformation. And if she just possibly continued that transformation too far and maybe into megalomania, I think there can be some compassion for that when you consider where she started. My major source for today was a speech given by Luis Mott at a symposium at the University of Maryland. He is Rosa's Brazilian biographer, but the speech is in English. I'll leave a link on the website at herhalfofhistory.com. Please follow me there or on Facebook or on Twitter. Many thanks to my wonderful big brother who helped me with the pronunciation. If I still got it wrong, I'm sorry. I will be posting a bonus blog post on Dandara, a Brazilian slave-turned-resistance fighter who I really wanted to include in this series but couldn't. Check out the post to see why. Next week, we will be visiting Massachusetts, so please come back. Thanks! This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.
History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.